This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch Larson. And I have to ask Sarah one question. Do you know Kung Fu? <laughs> I've been looking forward to this discussion, Mr. McLenathan, for a very long time. <laughs> I look forward to our impending fist fight in the bowels of a subway station Fair, very soon, Sarah. Oh, excellent. Just so long as uh, you're out of bullets, I think we'll be good to go. <laughs> I'll, I'll pack my, my cool sunglasses and that's all I need. Excellent. Well, listeners, in case you couldn't tell, this means that we are reviewing the new Matrix movie that has just hit theaters in HBO Max. The Matrix Resurrections is Lana Wachowski's new addition to the hallowed action franchise, and we're going to be taking a long look at it this week. Plus, we've got a couple of really big announcements coming up on this episode, episode 317 of Seeing and Believing. Hi, everyone. This is Steve Norton from ScreenFish.net and ScreenFish Radio. And to me, the best film of 2021 is Julia Ducourneau's Titan. Titan tells the story of a young woman who, after committing a series of violent murders, ends up out on the run looking to start a new life. Her sanctuary comes in the form of a firefighter who is still grieving the loss of his son. Posing as the man's long-lost son, she attempts to find salvation and redemption by living the life of someone else. I will not tiptoe around it. Titan is a brutal, violent, and sexually graphic film. It is a very, very difficult watch. However, embedded within the controversial and wild content is one of the purest prodigal son parables I have ever seen on film. Although the finale is absolutely insane and bonkers, there is a picture of grace and beauty that is absolutely stunning. While it's not a film that I exactly want to revisit on multiple viewings, there is something so powerful about this film that speaks to all of our needs of redemption and being seen for more than the sum of our actions. Despite its dark and violent wrapping, this is certainly a film with a deep, deep message of love underneath. Thanks so much, Kevin, and for everybody for including me and having me on. Thanks so much to Steve Norton of Screenfish for sharing his pick for the best movie of last year. I'll admit that Titan is another film that I still haven't caught up with yet, but it sounds fascinating and weird and Cronenbergian. I don't know, I'm looking forward to catching up with it at some point. And after our top 10 episode last week, Sarah, I think we both have a pretty lengthy to watch list in yeah, front of us. Yeah, we, we definitely do. Um, last year just feels like it was so stacked and... There were so many movies that just came out in the last month, two months. Titan was one of those movies that was on my watch list that I just never got the chance to get around to. So hopefully in the coming months, I'll be able to catch up with it. We, we might have a chance to, who knows, we might even have a chance to talk about it briefly on a future episode. Speaking of which, Sarah, um, you are going to be on future episodes. We did tease this last week for eagle-eared listeners. Uh but Sarah 
I'm really happy to announce is going to be stepping in as the new permanent co-host of Seeing and Believing. Um, it's been really a lot of fun, Sarah, having you on the, the last few episodes. And I don't know, I think that we make a great team and I'm looking forward to uh, doing many more episodes with you in the days to come. Dynamic Nuo, I am very excited to be joining you here. Thank you for inviting me into the recording booth. And of course, vampire rules apply. I'm sticking around here. <laughs> Hopefully the vampires are more like the what we do in the shadows vampires versus like, I don't know, Dracula. But I guess uh, only time will tell. As as long as you remember that we're werewolves, not swearwolves. <laughs> this is still going to be <laughs> a family-friendly show. So. I will try to keep the cussing on a firm leash. <laughs> All right. Well, that's that's good enough for me. Listeners, we are really happy to be making this announcement, and we do have a few other uh, new additions to the show coming on down the pike, so please uh, keep tuning in and, and listen up for those. There are exciting days ahead for the show. And if you ever feel like uh, helping support us as we launch off into these new endeavors, you can always head on over to our Patreon page and shoot us a few of your hardened dollars. It really helps us not only continue to uh, keep the lights on, keep Jonathan paid and happy and all that good stuff, but it also helps us give you a little bit of swag yourself, for example, a personalized recommendation list or the opportunity to dictate one movie per year that Sarah and I have to review on the air. All those are possibilities for our faithful patrons. If you head over to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast, you can check out more details. And if you feel like it, sign up. Uh, but for now, uh, let's turn to the matter at hand, Sarah. We are going to be, uh, to borrow a phrase from the, from the Outer Limits intro, Moving into a realm not of sight and sound, but of mind. Um, we are going to be talking about the new Matrix movie. This is a movie that, at least for me, uh, the announcement of it came a little bit out of left field. After the Matrix revolutions so many years ago, I was thinking that Neo's adventures with Trinity and the gang, so to speak, had been, had been laid to rest and that the saga had closed. But... Warner Brothers had other plans. The Matrix Resurrections picks up with Neo apparently uh, still in some sort of simulation, this time as the well-respected game designer of a game trilogy titled The Matrix, in which the events of the original trilogy play out in video game form. Neo, this time, of course, going by his uh, more Earthbound name, Thomas Anderson, is not sure if what he has put into the game are fragments of real memories or simply artistic inspiration or manifestations of some mental illness, but he soon finds, thanks to some renegades who break him out of the simulation, that yes indeed, he is the erstwhile one known as Neo, and he needs to rescue Trinity from the simulation as well. Now, Sarah, that's just a bare plot synopsis, and that doesn't really give a good idea of everything that Lana Wachowski is up to with, with this picture. This is by far the most meta-fictional of all of the Matrix films, mm -hmm. and there's a good deal going on here in terms of Wachowski's feelings about franchise filmmaking, about the nature of storytelling, fiction, and about what the artist's role is 
in uh, playing to an audience and maybe subverting expectations when necessary. So a lot going on. And as I recall, you had this movie at your number 10 spot of the entire year last year. So I'm really curious to hear you expound on that in a bit more detail now that we have an entire episode to talk about it at length. So let's jump right in. What was it about The Matrix Resurrections that you appreciated so much? And uh, what did you find of particular note in this one that you didn't necessarily find in previous installments? Well, you mentioned um, the meta-textual nature of this movie, and that was one of the first things that stood out to me, because this is not remotely a subtle movie. I don't think the Wachowskis have ever actually made a subtle movie, so I wasn't really looking for subtlety, but I was kind of struck by just how overt a lot of the allusions to the original trilogy were. Um, And I actually have a pet theory that Depending on your feelings about the sequels to the original Matrix, um, you will either like or dislike the Matrix Resurrections. I happen to be a bit of a sequels person, um, at least to a certain point. I truly love The Matrix Reloaded. Um, I think it's a fantastic movie. Um, Matrix Revolutions, a little bit to a lesser extent, and I guess we can get into that uh, if we need to. Um, but because I appreciate those movies, I think I have an appreciation for um, The Matrix Resurrections, largely because this is a movie that really doesn't give a rip about what you think about it. Um, <laughs> and that's one of the things that I admire about it so much. And I think that um, The Matrix sequels, which both came out, I think, within like six months of each other in 2003, um, have been really widely derided, I think, as attempts to expand on a universe that was already kind of perfect with that original Matrix movie in a way. And I agree with some with most people that the sequels are not as good as the original. It's kind of hard to beat the original because it's just such a perfect movie. Um, But they do an interesting job of expanding the world in unexpected ways. And I think that that's what I was really looking for was an unexpected revisit to this particular world in a way that widens its horizons a little bit. And with this movie, I got that. There is a meta element to the movie itself commenting on its own existence about whether or not that's even important. Like, there's there's a fun dig near the beginning about um, a uh, focus group talking about, like, what they really want, what the people really want about <laughs> The Matrix 4. Like, what are they expecting to see? They're expecting to see something fresh and original in this third sequel to a well-loved franchise. And I hit that point and I just had to laugh. And I really appreciated the fact that Lana Wachowski is commenting on on the fact that a lot of people have taken the movie that she and her sister made almost 20 years ago and have really turned it to their own interpretations. And she kind of said, mm, no, everything that you've said about these movies that we made a long time ago, none of those are really necessarily true because I get to be the one who dictates what happens in this world next. And then she goes and does it and she doesn't really seem to care too much about what other people think about what is important about the matrix because to her what's important about the matrix is this bond between neo and trinity um and i just i just had to admire that level of willingness to take ownership of her art and turn it into something a little bit different than what most people might have expected 
That's a that's a good defense of it. I I'm glad that uh, you you kicked off the episode because I I find I'm <laughs> I might have to be the buzzkill on this one, and it it makes me sad because I do think that's a very spirited defense of it, and to a, you know to some extent I agree with a lot of what you say, mm-hmm. but to return to your your original theory about the opinion of the two original Matrix sequels mm-hmm. being a bellwether for how you'd react to this film. I think that holds true for me as well. Um, I I like uh, Reloaded pretty well. I think it's flawed and it starts to sort of um, eat its own tail uh, mm-hmm. a little bit to its detriment towards its end. But I think for the majority of its runtime, it's just a, a crackerjack action picture and mm-hmm. does a better job than I might have expected uh, in drawing a new story out of what seemed like a really tight self-contained narrative mm-hmm. in the very first Matrix movie. The Matrix Revolutions is where they really lost me, though. I think that mm-hmm. there there's a lot of diminishing returns in uh, the Wachowski's approach to to this sort of sci-fi story where it's all about, you know, truth versus, uh, versus lies and, and what the nature of choices and freedom and all the, the philosophical baggage that goes along with those questions. Mm. There, there's diminishing returns in digging deep into those questions while also trying to be a big blockbuster experience. And I think that that really kind of th- those two gravitational forces end up, end up pulling revolutions apart mm-hmm. at the seams and I think that that's a little bit of what's going on here with the Matrix Resurrections as well. I think the the metatextual aspects are are fun, but they're not. I it, it's it's a little bit of an odd film to talk about because it almost feels like it's it's in two halves. The first half is all about sort of the the metafiction, and in a lot of ways, are kind of a almost a manifesto. Or, or at least Wachowski sort of thumbing her nose at the suits at Warner Brothers, saying like, "You want me to make a a, a Matrix sequel, franchise sequel? Okay, I'll give you one, but <laughs> yeah. you're not going to like what the the kind of one that I give you." Mm-hmm. Um, it, it remind me a lot of the uh, you know those those gags in The Simpsons where they talk about the Fox Network and you know, <laughs> make jokes at their patrons' expense. Mm-hmm. And I think so so there's that half and then the second half is much more about the relationship between Neo and Trinity which was really nice to see. I think that mm-hmm. um if I think back to my initial experience with the very first Matrix, the relationship between them was one of the things I really keyed into the most emotionally mm-hmm. with, through the whole thing. So even though the action sequences were awe-inspiring, I think the thing that stuck with me was sort of the final scene where uh, Neo is essentially resurrected by Trinity's love. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's nice to see the franchise rediscover that as the beating heart of the story, Mm -hmm. um, more so than the philosophical claptrap in this latest installment. But I think kind of that that bifurcated structure where it's sort of half of it is very much into the the curly cues of the metafiction and the other half is very much a hard on its sleeve exploration of what it means for two people to be truly connected to each other. Mm. I don't think they mesh all that well together and trying to spackle them together with some action sequences. It just, it feels like the movie's heart isn't in it and doesn't really know quite what it wants to be. 
Ooh. Which, to be fair, Lana Wachowski didn't necessarily want to make this movie, so yeah. that's understandable. But that doesn't mean it's that doesn't necessarily make it good, if if that makes sense. I think that tracks. Um, maybe I can help spackle some of those pieces together a little bit. So All right. the the irony of that first half really threw me for a loop when I first started watching it. And again, like I appreciated it very much, but it was also kind of a jarring tone and texture because the Wachowskis are extremely earnest filmmakers. Um, I think they always have been. And for this movie to kick off with a lot of like almost biting the hand that feeds them um saying like hey warner brothers wants us to make this movie like almost literally word for word and then saying okay fine you're gonna get your matrix movie i think that that layer of irony really only shows up when the characters are plugged into this new version of the matrix and then once they get out of the matrix that irony kind of disappears and so the way that i was reading it was this is the Matrix as Web 2.0. There's this layer of irony. There's this layer of we know everything now because we just have it all at our fingertips. So we're going to be really smarmy about it. And watching that first half of that movie, especially on my second pass through it, really honestly felt like scrolling Twitter in a way. Like a lot of, there's a lot <laughs> of repetition. There's a lot of the same jokes over and over again. There's a lot of winking, like, see, this is a thing that I know and I'm going to make a joke about it and you're going to hear this joke a ton, but it doesn't matter because I was the first one to make that joke. I get to be the person to leave that first comment at the top of the YouTube comments like chain. Um, and once I realized like it really did feel a lot like Matrix as Web 2.0, I think a lot of the rest of the movie snapped into place with me. There's a character who becomes more important near the end of the movie, who really treats a lot of the other characters around him in a very cavalier way that kind of reminded me of a lot of the jerks that you tend to come across online, just a lot of casual misogyny, a lot of like carelessness towards the amount of harm and the amount of power that he has over other people. And that also felt very Web 2.0. And this character crucially really only pops up a ton in the matrix so it, it really just felt like a, a very knowing portrait of what it is like to be on the internet today and i appreciated that very much this episode is brought to you in part by seattle's union gospel mission over 13,000 people in the seattle area are homeless kathy is one of many who found a new life through seattle's union gospel mission growing up my dad and i didn't get along i kept running away from home until one time i was assaulted after that, I carried a lot of pain inside of me, and I was doing a lot of drugs. I became homeless. It's taken me almost 40 years to get the healing I needed, but all along, God was looking out for me. He led me to the mission, and the mission has helped me in all kinds of ways. I've learned how to set boundaries and say no. Now I'm looking forward to working for the mission. I want people to know there's hope out there. God can help you heal. And grace will lead me home. To hear more, volunteer, or donate, visit UGM.org. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting that the sequence that I thought was the most thrilling from a cinematic standpoint was actually from that that first act of the film where mm -hmm. it's the it's it's uh 
played under a uh it, it scored to the uh song go ask alice mm-hmm. right you know the, which we saw some of it in the trailer but i think the way that it's edited together and the way that it uses repetition and, and rhyming images to suggest how neo is is uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Thomas Anderson in this film, <laughs> is trapped in sort of this this very soul-killing mm-hmm. uh, capitalist cycle where everybody's constantly saying the same thing over and over. It's all about selling to the right people and, and having the right pitch. Mm-hmm. And you kind of, after a while, find yourself going through the motions rather than taking joy in your creative endeavors. Mm. I mean, that's obviously very much Wachowski, you know, letting herself show through in the narrative but i think the and maybe that's why it was so um compelling to me is it really felt like this was a sequence that wikowski was very personally invested in felt very strongly about at the time Mm -hmm. and for that reason it felt like there was an urgency behind it that i felt drained out of the movie the longer that Mm -hmm. that i watched it and that draining, I I guess for me, kind of began around the time when people start having to explain things. Mm. It's I don't know. It's 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 funny. Uh, the uh, I feel like Christopher Nolan gets taken to task a lot for ha- just be having extremely talky movies where everybody is always explaining the rules of the world to one another, mm-hmm. and yet he's a very cold filmmaker, very different from the way La- Lana Wachowski, or at least latter day Wachowski makes her films Mm -hmm. and yet they kind of feel like two sides of the same coin when it comes to exposition where they just they they want to make sure that everything is sort of laid out in some fashion and i don't know after a while it feels it feels a little deadening to me Mm. Mm. yeah yeah i definitely get that this is a movie that could have been probably a good 20 minutes shorter and i don't think it would have been harmed by that and i do think that a lot of the exposition is it, it feels a little bit extraneous to me. Um, and at the same time, I don't know how you get all of that information out naturally, at least like in this particular world, because the original movies are also extremely talky too. Like mm-hmm. even the very first one, the vast majority of the action other than, you know, the gun foo and, and the kung foo is uh, Lawrence Fishburne explaining what's happening Keanu Reeves or um, uh, Hugo Weaving talking about how much he hates living in inside the prison of the Matrix as well. So I get that. I feel like it is still of a kind with the rest of the Matrix movies, partly just because they're all far. They're partly because they're really all just kind of talky movies. But I also get the frustration there too. Well, I it's it's strange though because you're you're right that there's lots of exposition and and talking in the other matrix movies but i think back to that first uh scene where morpheus is talking to neo in the in the very first matrix where he talks about you know it's all about turning a human being into this and he holds up a duracell battery right up to the camera and there's something about that exposition out and it might just be because this is just a completely new world that we're discovering for the first time. But mm-hmm. I'm wondering if maybe it's just a filmmaking issue where the just the the performances and the writing and the the filmmaking in that first movie's sequence was just so mm-hmm. crisp and well done that maybe I was looking for something similar in, in this one and maybe wasn't finding it. But I don't know if that's necessarily true as I'm talking about it because it's not as if 
this is you know wachowski is directing on autopilot here mm-hmm. so i and it's it's i'm having a hard time putting my finger on exactly why one feels magical and the other one feels deadening and mm. i don't know I'm, I'm coming up maybe a little bit blank on that but it's it's hard for me to deny either way part of me wonders if it's because the original movie in any series is kind of by nature going to be the most simple out of all of them like if you have a sequel you do have to add something new otherwise what's the point and why are you telling this story um so i don't know if that's necessarily the factor that's at play here, but it does feel like the rest of the Matrix movies in particular are really focused on branching out and spreading out into like more and more heady concepts. And I think the thing that I like about the headiness of this one is this is a movie that is a challenge to binary thinking and to just like choices that aren't really choices a lot of characters will say outright like red pill blue pill not much of a choice really is it um and that's something that i really liked like there's there's a moment about midway where you realize that like the the characters who were the bad guys in the original three movies like was very cut and dried and in this one it's not necessarily like if if you look at a character you're not necessarily going to know if they're a bad guy or not um and i really kind of liked that added nuance to this story um it just felt a little bit more like something that could hypothetically happen in the real world as opposed to just like the good guys wear white hats and the bad guys wear black hats and everybody's going to roll into town or, and have a showdown. Or or happen to be robot squids, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Either way, it's pretty clear, yeah. 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 Um, I did find that the uh, the sequence where uh, Keanu Reeves' character ends up in the, uh, the human uh, cities of the post-apocalyptic future mm-hmm. uh, were... Some of the most interesting, partly because of that dimension that you were talking about, where there is a little bit more nuance to it other than sort of like a, a, a you know, Terminator franchise sort mm-hmm. of machines, bad humans, good kind of thing, where it digs a little bit deeper into the psychology of conflict, mm-hmm. of what uh, living in constant fear for your life and, and living in a state of war can do to a person. When Ken Reeves' character meets up with somebody who we know from the uh, first trilogy, but don't necessarily recognize because she's so much older. Um, there, there's a really nice scene where she tells him about the experience of living through the initial war with the machines and how even now it's hard for her to get used to the silence. Mm. It's hard for her to get used to not necessarily waking up every day uh, in fear for humanity's existence Mm -hmm. and the lengths to which she goes in order to preserve that peace simply out of fear for what she might lose. I found that to be very compelling. I'm curious to know what you think about, um, you mentioned earlier um, about the direction and the acting and just how pure they are in the original movie. And I was curious to know what you thought about the acting in particular Keanu's acting in this movie. Did that work for you or was that something that felt a little bit too broad or or how did that work? I I thought the I thought the performances were pretty strong uh almost across the board. I think that Reeves gives it might be my favorite of his outings mm. as uh as Neo. Mm. Um I think that there's a 
I, I've never been a huge fan of of his performance in the in the initial three. I just don't know that there's a whole lot that he's doing that's that's interesting other than being an action star in those. He's fine and gets the job done, but I think in this movie he really Neo feels like a a person more than a pose, if mm. that makes sense. He he's not just playing sort of uh you know uh, an action hero who's got kind of a streak of anti-authoritarianism mm. as we meet him in the very first movie. He's playing uh somebody with history, with with wants, with regrets, with um some wounds in himself that he can't quite put his finger on but he knows that he feels deeply every day Mm. i think that i was i was actually kind of surprised by how much i liked him in this movie i think that he does an excellent job i also want to give a shout out to yaya abdul mateen as morpheus 2.0 so Um, good i wish he was in the movie more uh i i mean the thing about about him is he, he's the movie really sparks to life in he, he brings such a great unique energy to all of his scenes that it makes me wish he were in the movie more but then on the other hand i don't quite understand what the movie is doing with him and mm. on a script level so uh I, again i just it, it's it's a situation where I kind of like the component pieces of the movie, but I don't think that they're put together in a particularly uh, uh, in, in a way that works particularly well. But I'm curious to know your thoughts. Yeah, um, it is kind of a fragmented movie. And this is the thing that I'm the most conflicted about, even though I am much more positive on this movie than you are, I think. I love everything that Keanu Reeves is doing here. And I am uh, on the record as just being a person who loves his work in general, um, physical and not. Um, I think that he's actually capable of a lot of subtlety um, that a lot of people tend to overlook him for because they know him either as like Ted. They People know him as Ted from Bill and Ted, or they think of him as just uh, just as neo saying whoa for the first time when he finally figures out like what's going on in the matrix and what he's capable of and yeah i agree with you there's there's a lot more weight i think and a lot more it feels like he's playing tired in this Mm. and you kind of feel the weight of that tiredness in a way that i wasn't really expecting to feel and i appreciate the way that he kind of just allows you to sit in that feeling and in that emotion and i kind of wish almost that the movie had slowed down a little bit like maybe a little bit shorter maybe a little bit more slowed down giving you a little bit more of a chance to just sit with this character instead of having things explained at him so yeah i do share quite a few of your of your frustrations with this movie i was just able to uh i think overlook a lot of them because i was just so happy to see these characters (laughs) on screen again well uh, to to your point about Reeves, he does something. I, I I like his physical acting in this movie when he squares up with with a foe in this movie where he kind of like you know gets into the kung fu pose and gets ready to fight. Mm-hmm. There there is a tiredness to him. Like he, he's kind of like okay, gosh, I'm just gonna <laughs> here we go again. Kind of that feeling, and I really liked seeing that out of him. It wasn't. It it, it felt like a very considered choice, and it really said so much about what was going through his head beyond I just have to punch and kick a bunch of guys. Like it was, it was, it was a welcome note of, of interiority in, in what was a moment that wouldn't necessarily call for it. So I, I liked him quite a bit here too. That's a crucial thing too, that I feel conflicted about because it's not really in line with the other matrix movies, but I think it's an important distinction with this one is that this movie in particular 
is not as interested in the action sequences, except Mm -hmm. when characters are getting trying to get out alive or they're on the defense. I don't think Keanu Reeves picks up a gun at all in this movie. He just doesn't do it. Um, mm-hmm. He might not do it in the sequels either now that I think about it. He's definitely more of a of a defensive character when he's fighting. He's working to preserve life and not take it. Um, but this movie does not, I think, show the fight sequences quite as well as its predecessors do. Even um, The Matrix 2 and 3, there are some very memorable fights. And in this one... I didn't quite get the same thrill from watching like fist fights in this movie as I did from its predecessors. And I think that's kind of the point is that you're not supposed to enjoy watching people beat each other senseless. I think you're supposed to feel a sense of grief about that and a sense of relief that they're able like when they are able to get away. Um, so that was something that it stood out to me and I'm still kind of chewing on it. And I think that's one of the other things that I like about this movie is that I am still chewing on it, even after having seen it a couple of weeks ago. Um, I've just been thinking about the way that the movie shows Jessica Hennig's character, for example, Bugs, uh, just jumping off a building to get away from some pursuers and the way that the movie films her in motion as she is trying to preserve life, much more so than it films her trying to take it. And that's just something that really stuck out to me. Yeah, the the action sequences are, I, I think they're, it, it's sort of, it might be a combination of the two. I do think that Wachowski is very intentionally going for something with these, with these uh, fight scenes where it's not about the, you know, the bang, bang, punch punch of for example the lobby scene from the first one there's much more thoughtfulness uh behind how violence is used and when and by whom um that said i do think that a lot of the weakness of the fight scenes does come down to the to the filmmaking and if i knew more about the technical aspects like you know cameras and shutter speeds and whatnot i would be able to say exactly how Mm. but just looking at the way slow motion is used in some of these it just looks it looks chintzy and it's not because of the cinematography necessarily because it's all lit really beautifully it's all in the framing and the specific ways in which i don't know the 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 footage is is edited and and sort of zhuzhed up maybe in 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 post-production again if i knew more about the technical aspects of filmmaking i would have the actual vocabulary to describe it but i i think that you you can tell in those scenes that wachowski isn't really interested in the action scenes the way that she was when making the original trilogy Hmm. which is is fine but it almost makes me wish that maybe she had just um found another way to make a, an a, a movie like this that didn't rely quite so heavily on you know scenes that sequences that go on for as long as these action sequences do well definitely a lot to talk about either way and you're right sarah i think that there is a lot that this film is the sort of film that is deceptively uh sticky and there's a lot to chew on with it so I'm glad that I had the chance to see it, and I'm interested to know if any of our listeners have also had the chance to see it, what your thoughts are. It is uh, streaming on HBO Max currently, but it is leaving that service at the end of the month. Um, so if you have access to it now, now's your chance to to check it out. If you don't want to check it out in the theater, 
the theatrical experience, if you can see it safely, might be preferable because it is one of those big spectacles. But mm-hmm. either way, it's probably worth worth seeing. Well, uh, that is our our review of The Matrix Resurrections, and uh, that'll probably close out this episode as well. Sarah, I'm looking forward to our future episodes, and I'm especially looking forward to uh, something we're going to do in the future that is going to take the place of our recommendations segment. Longtime listeners know that the end of the episodes where we would offer a recommendation from the world of television or film for you, our listeners, to check out. And we're going to continue something in that spirit, mm-hmm. but we're going to put a little bit of a spin on it here for the era of Sarah Welch Larson. So <laughs> I'm really looking forward to unveiling that in the coming weeks. Looking forward to that as well. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking to me about the Matrix uh, Resurrections, and thank you for you know uh, tolerating my my dislike for <laughs> one of your favorite movies of the year. It's maybe a, a rocky start to to a long uh, podcasting relationship, but uh, I'm looking forward to it anyway. That just means that I get to argue about it more, so I think it counts as a win still. <laughs> right on, works for me. Well, listeners, thanks for tuning in this week. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. My co-host is Sarah Welch-Larson, and we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes, and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0. 